Hello. Hello. <laughs> check, check. Hello. Wow. That's pretty good, I think, depending on my distance. Um, welcome to the second event in uh, this quarter's new writing series. Um, it's really going to be a fantastic event, and I'm so glad that we could bring Claudia down. Uh, I'm not going to be doing the intro um, for this, but I will remind you to turn your cell phones off uh, or down to a point where they're impossible to be heard. Uh, and, uh, and to thank the Dean in the Division of Arts and Humanities uh, and the Sims Family Trust for their generous support of our series. Uh, and I'd like to introduce uh, MFA student Ryan Luz, uh, who has agreed gleefully to, uh, to introduce Claudia this evening. So, Ryan, thanks. Thank you. Um, it's a tiny bit long, this introduction. Um, but I encourage you to blame Claudia for doing a lot of things well. Okay. Claudia Rankin is a poet, playwright, and multimedia artist born in Jamaica and raised both in Kingston and in New York City. She earned a BA at Williams College and an MFA at Columbia University and has taught at the University of Houston, Barnard College, the University of Georgia, and Pomona College. The, the Academy of American Poets, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Lannan Foundation have all awarded Claudia fellowships. Her play, The Providence of Beauty, a South Bronx travelogue, is performed on a bus traveling through South Bronx and was a 2011 Distinguished Development Project selection in the American Voices New Play Institute at Arena Stage. Along with Julianne Spar, she co-edited co the anthology American Women Poets in the 21st Century, Where Lyric Meets Language. Her poems have appeared in many journals, including Southern Review and Kenyon Review, as well as in several anthologies. She received the Cleveland State Poetry Prize for her first book of poem, poems, Nothing in Nature is Private. Her three other collections of poetry are The End of the Alphabet, The Plot, and the groundbreaking Don't Let Me Be Lonely, um, in which she introduced visuals into her text. Of Don't Let Me Be Lonely, poet Joy Graham said, Rankin breaks out, out, out of virtual emotion, reawakens honesty, and exhibits such a raw political courage and aesthetic bravery, it sends tremors through the entire field of American poetry as she finds it. Indeed, Claudia Rankin speaks fearlessly of fear, of the legitimate causes for concern present in contemporary American life. She is endlessly imaginative and endlessly aware, inhabiting multiple voices in her work, all of them searching, all of them revealing the liquid simplicities and fantastic challenges of being, of thinking. Elizabeth Sampson says, quote, Claudia Rankins is an expansive and open-hearted poetics in which the heart belongs to all of us, her eye as flexible as her form. She simultaneously exudes supreme confidence and carries the necessary unending doubt. Her work is a force which believes in itself, but is too in intelligent to stop asking itself questions. Don't Let Me Be Lonely asks, quote, define loneliness? Yes. It's what we can't do for each other. What do we mean to each other? What does a life mean? Why are we here if not for each other? A fantastic poet who I admire uh, in both her art and her concern, I'm pleased, pleased to introduce to you, Claudia Rankin. Thanks so much for that introduction. It was very nice. I am, I am pleased to be here. This is one of my favorite places to come. 
you're my favorite people. <laughs> you don't know this, but you know, I'm very jealous of your community. Um, I am going to start by showing a video, so I'm going to sit down, and then I'm going to get back up. I'm going to leave these here because I'm going to come back. <laughs> That's a demonstration of my commitment. <laughs> My brothers are tourists. Just no place. My brothers are notorious. They do regular things like wait. On my birthday, they say my name. They will never forget my name. What is that? My brothers are notorious. Though they have not been to prison, they have been imprisoned. But the prison is not a place you enter. It is no place. My brothers are notorious. They do regular things like wait. On my birthday, they say my name. They will never forget my name. What is that knowledge? Is it sadness? The days of our childhood together were like steep steps into a collapsing mind. It looked like we rescued ourselves or we were rescued, but then there are these days, each day of our adult lives. They will never forget our way through these brothers. Each brother, my brother, dear brother, my dearest brothers, dear heart, your hearts are broken. This is not a secret, though there are secrets, and as yet I do not understand how my own sadness has turned into my brother's hearts. The hearts of my brothers are broken. If I knew a different way to be, I would call up a brother and I would hear myself saying, I can't believe you answered the phone. On the tip of a tongue, one note following another seems like another path, another dawn, when the pink sky is the bloodshot of struck, of sleepless, of sorry, of senseless, shush. Someone wrote, I said he's my brother. I don't know why I would have said that. Maybe she knows the violence done to the body of a brown child in the time before this one. Because I am a sister, because I have brothers, it's as if I've always known. Those years of and before me and my brothers, the years of passage, of plantation, of migration, of Jim Crow segregation, poverty of inner cities, profiling of one in three, fast food of two jobs of boy, hey boy, accumulate into the hours inside our childhood, so we are all caught hanging the rope inside us, the tree inside us, its roots are limbs, a throat sliced through, and when we open our mouth to speak, blossoms, oh blossoms, no place coming out, brother, oh brother, in that kind of blue. The sky is the silence of my brothers all the days leading up to my call. If I called, I'd say goodbye before I broke the goodbye. I say goodbye before anyone can hang up, don't hang up. 
My brother hangs up, though he's there on the phone. I keep talking, the talk keeps him there. The sky is blue, a kind of blue. It is hot. Is it cold? Are you cold? It does get cool. Are you cool? Is it cool? My brother is completed by sky. The sky is his silence, but eventually he says, it is raining, it is raining down. It was raining, it stopped raining, it is raining down. He won't hang up. He's there. He's there, but he's hung up, though he's there. Goodbye, I say. I break the goodbye. I say goodbye before anyone can hang up. Don't hang up. Wait with me. Wait with me. Though the waiting might be the call of goodbyes. I would, want, I would change that, but as far as who I am, nah, I'm cool with me. Um, I want to say the two guys in this. My brothers are notorious. They, um, they both committed a crime when they were 18 and they spent 20 years in prison. And that, those shots of them looking out the window, that was the ride they took the first day they left prison. So um, my husband is doing a documentary and um, I saw on the computer them looking out the window and I thought, that's not any ordinary looking out the window. And he said, no, 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 that's them leaving the prison after 20 years. So then I, I I made that. We made that. Okay. <laughs> I think they got it. Maybe we just move it that way. Um, I'm going to start by reading a poem, but not the poem. Not yet. <laughs> this is just something else. It's called The Health of Us. We heard health care, and we thought public option. We thought reaching across the street, across the lines, across the aisle, was the manifestation of not a red state, not a blue state, but these United States, we thought. We could be sure of ourselves in this one way, sure of our human element, our basic decency, and if justice was how love showed itself in public, then love was defined by access to care. When someone, anyone, thought that cough that burned the chest was probably nothing, but who knew? That fever after three days, that inability to breathe, to sleep, to wake, injustice, in love, we thought we were ready to be just as good, to be better, and despite all the ways we exist on al alone, no one would be ill on their own. We were ready to take a stab at a kind of human kind of union. We were ready to check up, to look after. In this one way, we were ready to care for each other. We were ready to see our range of possibilities as a precious commodity, to know every other as another, to live in the width of our being. And we weren't ignorant or stupid or naive or idealist or socialist or communist or Canadians. We understood. 
The private options would still keep us alive longer. We understood the private options would treat the disease, not the symptoms. The private options meant access to specialists, to privacy, to elective procedures, to a team of doctors, to radiology, imaging, to brand name drugs, we understood. The impossibility of real equality. But this single shift towards a national community, we thought, despite being founded on genocide and sustained by slavery in God's country, we thought we were ready to see sanity inside the inhumanity. We thought the improbability of the face on Capitol Hill meant possibility. And we were wrong. <laughs> we were wrong, but he's the best we got. All right, so I'm going to try. I'm working on this new book. It's called um, That One's for Beautiful Children. And what I, the book, I don't know. I was talking to Ray about this. I'm trying to work with the essay and the lyric but not as a kind of prose poem, really to look at the, um, the essay and, and work that through. And I thought that one way of doing it was to try and create a kind of national family and, um, and a person to, to bring together sort of the national black family and the personal black family, sort of what the text of this thing with the brothers, that kind of thing where you meet, you meet the external internally in a familial way. And so the essays have to do with that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the, the opening section, which is both sort of essay and, and lyric, and then I'm going to read um, two sort of more essayistic sections. And and then, and then I'll, I'll say goodnight. Okay? The first one is a little long. I, I think it comes in at 22 minutes. And um, there are images in this, and I was trying to figure out how to communicate them. So they will just come up on here. And I'm trying to time it, but, you know, that might work, might not work. <laughs> we'll see. So now, a dirt road, a maternal she putting a hand out behind her to the trailing girl without turning around. Somewhere ahead, thrown against a white hot sun, is a life, emancipated, though colonized still, subservient still. I'm going to stop for a minute. It, it should... It should be going. As, as long as you turned it on, there won't be anything to see, if that makes sense. You won't see anything until there's something to see. Okay. And it's going? I should hurry up then. <laughs> okay. Even as the creator of myself, there is dumbness. The blank that sometimes displaces memory. The blank withdrawing time. And there the road parts my lids. I see her seeing the extended hand as a falling wave. Then all becomes sky blanketing a single memory of the feel of dirt on a dirt road, Degular Road. 
A half century gone remains a landscape to locate this body against. Each moment spent in search of a self before the roar of American airlines turns up a she, an islet, an islet. I get ahead of myself, begin as if I am a beginning. On the birth certificate, a name, a place of birth, and a mother. Her name is there where they ask her to sign, hers the only signature. Maybe her singularity should be reconsidered. Maybe it's possible to make the official papers also hold its story. For that truth is possibly happening and happening in the world in this very moment. A woman falls backward while fighting someone off and her falling grows in her womb. This is not how she'll tell it, but it helps to see her motion before she erases the moment, its product, a trailing girl. The certificate as it stands is a blueprint of the world. It addresses the overpowering illegalities through omission. The same material, maternal she at 16 in the year 1950 moves from the countryside to Kingston where she grows to study the practical and psychological needs of the patient. In her white dress, white stocking and shoes and white nursing cap, she graduates third in her class. She remembers Thursdays when Herb McKinley would come to lead the girls in sports. On those days, she wore a white blouse, blue skirt, and sneakers. She remembers McKinley, the nephew of Sister Edwards, was a nice-looking man, tall and handsome. She remembers and remembers the time before she is made to forget. She is human and hurt. I keep moving towards the descending girl. She keeps moving towards me. I keep moving towards me. It's a shame. It's your shame. Shame on you. I'm ashamed. You, I, she, we, they turn in on ourselves only to discover the encounter to be commonplace to this place. Wait with me. The wait is in the walking. The road opens out to time. The same road, the same dirt road crossing a century as a mother's mother walking home from church bends in the heat of her swelling feet. Her good church shoes have no give. Far enough down the road, she takes them off. This was not the first time he'd seen her. He watched her remove first the left shoe and then the right. Falling in step, he takes his off as well. And who do I have the pleasure of walking alongside? Mary Jane. It was Master Hall's land they were strolling on in St. Anne's Parish. The year was 1894, and he was John Hall. His family, Scotland, could not have imagined this moment, though the process to emancipate slaves belonged to their century. He was 40, and she was 20 when they married. The wait is in the waiting. The road opens out, each step in prints the wet dirt, black cows on my left, a marsh on my right, keeps the uncomfortable business of mosquitoes a shadow thought, as I try to close the distance between that grandmother and me, the breathing palpable. 
I am thinking the former slave marries the master as each step throws my weight against the earth. And because they created the daughter they did, the mother I have, it seems a space between them is occupied, zoned for surrendering. What does it mean for the daughters of the histories of the daughters? Is erasure certain to become an action of being? I, you, we, she, they walk through mist and vanish with that which vanishes. But I'm still here as the day clears back into muddiness. Each step is another thought. The former slave marries the master. And what does the kiss and what the kiss communicates is intimate, private. But what the kiss defies still watches, still waits. Wait with me. It is difficult to see. It is difficult not to see. I keep moving towards her. She keeps moving towards me. A wayward interior reconstructing a lost exterior. There is a hurt in history like milk the moment before it curdles. My grandmother turned her children into nurses. She turned them toward the body. She realigned the self in relation to another and created the tendency to make the you visible, even if the lyrical I hurts. One son, before he immigrates, is in the inaugural class of men to become nurses in Jamaica. On the entire island, on the day he graduates, there are only six male nurses certified to care for the bodies, all the bodies surrounding them. How does one care for a hurt body, the kind of body that can't hold the content it is living? And where is the safest place in the whole wide world located when that place has to be someplace other than in the body? Because in the parish of St. Catherine, the doors are left open, because an open door means everyone is family, because the parish is so small there are no strangers, because she turns to him without thought, because it takes him less than 30 minutes to break into time, because she has his full name in her throat as the palm of his hand absorbs her scream, because naming him means nothing. He is the tearing that creates no one. She said when she told her mother she was pregnant, her mother died. Her heart failed. How long after? Not the rape, but the pregnancy. Not what went into the body, but what would come out. The start of the self, those earliest years, a presence already failing the day. The ground is there. Though the ground, it's discontinuous time. Isn't that the definition of trauma? Is trauma the definition of the lyric? The lyric is a song overheard in the moonlight, overcome in the moonlight. It seemed as if beauty saved her. Despite the child growing in her, the photograph passed around by one of her brothers among the migrant workers shipped to Massachusetts from Jamaica was a thing to behold. 
a black girl without brown skin in her white nurse's uniform, sent one worker in particular her way. The marriage was his, the family, instantaneous. These were the years the United States was importing labor and immigrant with the labor and immigrant skills. Their nursing degrees were as good as passports. Like a chain link, the immigration of one family member made possible the next and the next until a small girl child of six boarded American Airlines, entered American Air. What I remember stepping off that first plane is being offered a white eyelet sweater in customs in the new cold. It was warm and not, the knit full of holes. The orderly, the new father, the one hired in the new world to bathe patients and record temperatures and give enemas and lift bodies onto and from beds and set up oxygen tents and collect soiled linens and bathe the deceased, this black man was thinking anyone could just walk away from his own hurt. For if his body was ever a road, it was by now overrun. One could see this as the break in the road, though the line continues. Walk away from the Caesarea invisible except to the one speaking. No one is listening. When he closed his door behind him, he was thinking there are locks that need a key to open both on the outside and on the inside. There are locks where you need the key to get in and you need the key to get out. When he walked away from what was his, he would lock the door behind him. He would lock their bodies in. No one, no one is walking away from him. Because a locked door means everyone is family. Because a home is so small, there is nowhere to hide. Because she turns to him without thought. Because it takes him less than 30 minutes to break into time. Because she had father in her throat. Because the word is closed in by the palm of a hand. Because naming means nothing. He is the tearing that creates no one. Because a house on fire means no one will be able to get out. Any fool could see she was already aflame. Ash-faced girl, I don't want to die, she thinks. I am dead, and I don't want to die. Seven years and closed over like a lid, slipping down, burying who is buried within. It's discontinuous time, though the ground is there, the ground is there, falling and failing and falling into the gash. Listen, I'm sitting around publicly listening when I hear this. What happens to you doesn't belong to you, only half concerns you. He's speaking of the Legionnaires in Claire Denis' film, Beau Travail but I am pulled back into the body of the girl receiving the nothing gazes. Her own eyes caught by the nothingness, her own people caught up into expecting someone else, a reflection not even their own faces could satisfy. A dead end. The world out there insisting, this you 
Only half concerns you. What happens to you doesn't belong to you. Only half concerns you. It's not yours, not yours only. The child is everywhere. And she is nowhere in the day, in the family. The outside comes inside. Then girl, hey girl. This brutality, the brutality which is America, raises mad dogs that were once beautiful children. The erase begin a furious erasure. Who do you think you are saying I to me? You nothing, you nobody, you. A brown body shipped across the world drowns in it. The child devoured by a country seeing drowns in it. All our fevered history doesn't instill insight, doesn't make the day conscious, doesn't make the look in the eyes say yes. Though she is nothing to solve. Don't say I, if it means so little, holds the little, forming no one. She was not sick, she would be hurt for the rest of life. Some days there exists a wanting to escape, the self floating above its certain ache, splits off from the inhabited flesh, the hurt self a catastrophic what? A hurt coexists with the self, call that the imminent truth. You will be taken from you eventually, even before it matters. Even before you grow into understanding, your I is not anything worthless, not worth you. Another shore where you don't exist, never existed, won't exist, though my own weight insists, I am here fighting off the weight of non-existence. Even now my voice entangles this mouth whose words trip over themselves. I am here as pulse, an agitated throbbing firing my chest, breathlessness releasing this throat. Words mangle thumping within this body, shut in, shut up, I cannot say. But a body translates its history, saying the road is no more, saying destroyed is destroyed, is speechless, is betrayed, as this voice loses the location of its mouth. Out walking, I remind myself the shadow at my feet, the one appearing as I step out from the trees, the one creating its own shape is just me. Dear, dear one, what the new mother in the new world did was mother strangers. What she did was take temperatures check blood pressure, weigh and measure and pray for other people's children, other people's bodies. Immigrant, unsure, without, what she did was stay, stay trying. What she did was give and give without her eyes. Because a greater poverty in a new country where these white people have nothing for you seemed a scarier proposition than saving herself, saving her child. Seemed to scary a proposition than turning anyone in. Lord help us. 
never to walk in shoes that don't know what Audrey Lord knew. Shame produces silence, and silence keeps everything the same. When I lay my body in the body of the girl that is entered as if skin and bone were public spaces, when I lay my body in the body of the girl that is entered as if she's the ground I walk on, when I lay my body in the body of the girl, a weight pressing down, an historical weight brought down on the nothing child, I know no memory could live in these years because the years become the body of the girl that is entered as if skin and bone were public spaces. I think sometimes the girl as object slows all existence down with her call. Detectable only a sky, the night's yawn absorbs her shadow as she lies down at the wrong angles to the sun until some decency in the self can't help but reach out to the self. Though to do this means the privilege of standing at the center of a revived world is lost, is losing. I'm lost. Wait with me. Though the waiting might take until nothing whatsoever can be done. How to dwell within the girl I cannot outgrow. This girl I prefer to feel I accompany. I know I knew how it is to be polluted. Name that girl. Name that childhood. Name that dawn. To be left but not alone, the only wish. Leave her outstanding. Let her run. Let the rage exclude her. Let the day absorb. Let the night know. Let the justice promise. Let her quiet breathe. An absolute, obsolete pain knows no other home. Always she is lost already, ready already to take my hand. Small girl child uprooted, whatsoever can be done. At what point will language inhabit her limbs, fill out her torso, strip myself open my mouth to call out you? Who shouted you? You shouted you. You the murmur in the air, you sometimes sounding like sister, you sometimes saying you, go nowhere, be no one but my sister first. Nobody notices, but I've known you're not sick. You're hurt. I was too concluded yesterday, beset by seeing a self live without conclusion. Everything scattered, everything splintered, everything shadowed. Is the surveillance, is the aftertaste, is the dry, is the welt, is the stripped, is the struck. I was too concluded yesterday to know whatever was done to me could also be done, was also done. The worst hurt is feeling we didn't belong so much to each other. Let I murmur you, you the light deepening possibility, this dawn, this day, and what's next. This waiting alongside, next day and the next, be our coherency. So that's the end of that.
And I don't know if the images work. Do they work? Okay, cool. And um, so those that first, I don't know if you remember, but the first image of the girl, that's Billie Holiday. The, um, this, the older woman is Mary C. Cole. She was a Jamaican nurse who traveled um, to England and nursed the soldiers during the Crimean War. The group photo of the men, that actually is the first class of men. It was illegal in Jamaica for men to become nurses. And so that class is the first class of men. And actually, my uncle is in that photo. Um, and then I, the, I was trying to think about what it's like for a child to be um, wounded in this way. And it, it, it made me think that those children are like deer. And then I came across an artist who, remember those, those pieces, where she um, casts faces onto animals. So that's what those, those are. Okay, so now I'm going to read um, two more pieces. Um, another thing I'm doing in this book is I'm tracking the films of Claire Denis. Do you know her films? If you don't know her films, you should really see them. Um, this piece, the piece I just read, mentioned Otrevai. Um, and the piece I'm about to read is about 35 shots of rum. No one's seen it? Oh, you should really, really, really see it. She's, um, she's my favorite director of all, of all the directors in all the world. See 35 shots of rum is what she said. I'm serious, see it. Our father, the father every black girl wants is in it. She didn't know her father. Like many childhoods, hers was a barbed one, as mine was, as she knows. There are plenty of good fathers, some of them good black fathers. We are just not their daughters. Now there he is, the witterer Lionel, the Parisian commuter train driver in his blue sweater on his motorcycle coming home. Though he is a character pulled from the imagination of Claire Denis, a character based on her own Brazilian grandfather, a construct enlivened by the acting of Alex de Casse, he is the one we didn't know to want, her and me. He is the one who has been missing the lives of these two black daughters. Denis says that when she was a child, she wanted to be a nurse. She wanted to parachute into disaster. So she has landed in our lives with him, and though she thinks she made the film for her mother, riffing off of Uzu's late spring, she has led the two of us to a father's sweet answering warmth in the blood of lonesomeness. Or is it hunger, the hunger of lonesomeness? In many of the domestic scenes with this unscreen, with his unscreened daughter, they are dining. Whatever they're having goes on rice. Is it a kind of stew, a curry? The rice is from the rice cooker his daughter requested and he remembered to buy. Not knowing what is being served, what sauce is soaking through the rice, creates in me a rueful distance. 
but I don't. I won't ask anyone to give me guesses, to push me into the role of observer, break our sentimental contract with the screen, because he must not, we must not lose him, having never had him. We cannot now know, must not know again, the other way of being daughters. Denise says Alice Dicasse plays Lionel the father because his aloofness suggests a secret. The secret is in his eyes, around his mouth, in the way he watches, and in the way he waits. He contemplates, turns over in his mind a single thought. I could tell her, we'll tell her one day, the secret is that he is our father. When he gets dark thoughts, he thinks of us. That is his secret. Implicit in Lionel's presence is the singular fact that his daughter's well-being takes precedent over his own. Who he romances seems to be determined in part by where this unscreened daughter is in her life. The upstairs neighbor, the affable, tender, and resilient Gabrielle is presumably his partner when the daughter is young and in need of a surrogate mother. An accommodating, nameless restaurateur becomes the object of his passion when he needs to demonstrate to this daughter his independence of her, when he needs to tell her it is okay to marry her friend, to go away with this new love, to leave him who will never be abandoned by us. He has been imagined as endurance, compassion, as father. We glimpse but do not see his vulnerability because we are his vulnerability. He is both the blue of the sky and the blue of the ocean that swallowed his wife a childhood ago. And as such, he surrounds the land, engineers our movement through it. He navigates the land in the midst of tragedy. He crosses and recrosses the landscape, ferrying us back and forth, arriving on the outskirts of mourning. This father begins us again. In his eyes, we see our reflection. We cannot, he cannot see us. He cannot save us, yet he saves us. We recognize him because he deserves us. He steps into our long ago loss with this slow, quiet need to dull a rum knelling dull. And when we ask, he says, fight fire with fire. This father doesn't feel dishonestly. His willingness to approach death tells us he knows the physical dying is the least of it. He will wait with us in the late hour, in the night shift. He will close the banging window. He will stay behind in case he will wait with us, even after he has let us go. This father gives his daughters to the world. He is both the one who fights the elements and the elements. From the world, we look back at him and understand him to be the one, the world we inherit. With him, we have a kind of blue above and below at once. A glance kinship with the world despite everything, our troubling breath, its reverberations, a glance. And then I will end with this. Another definition of father is someone who comes apart the closer you get to him. This makes Robert Lowell a symbol for something. What held him together barely held. He didn't say he was using his skin as wallpaper, but he knew he wouldn't win. I'd say to him, Poppy, you have so much power. It's crazy. 
And he would look past me, all gloved up in his big coat, the one with the fancy fur around the collar, and record his voice saying, you should be scared. The first person can't pull you together. Shit, Poppy, you were reading my mind. But did you try? Tried rhyme, tried truth, tried epistolary untruth, tried and tried, he'd answer. You really did, I'd answer back. You really did. Everyone understood you to be suffering, and still everyone thought you thought you were the sun. But never mind about our unlikeness. You too have heard the noise in your own voice. Anyway, sit down, sit down with me. Sit here with me, Poppy. Exactly why we survive and can look back with furrowed brow is beyond me. It is not something to know. But I am thinking you're ill-spirited, broken down, hell on earth, nobody's here, cooked, first person, could be one of the many different definitions of being me you have passed on, Poppy. The past is a life sentence, a blunt instrument aimed at tomorrow. Drag that first person out of the social death of history, then you and I are kin. Kin calling out the past like a foreigner with, his newly mint, with her newly minted, fuck you. Maybe you don't agree. Maybe you don't think so. Maybe you were right, Poppy. I really don't have anything to confess. Why are you standing? Listen to you. I was creating a life study of a monumental first person, a Brahmin first person. If you need to feel that way. But you are in there and there is nowhere. Poppy, join me down here in nowhere. Don't lean against the wallpaper. Sit down and pull together. Yours is a strange dream, a strange reverie. No, Poppy, it's a strange beach. Each poem a strange beach. And if you let in the excess emotion, you will recall the Atlantic Ocean breaking on our heads. Thank you so much. So I think uh, Claudia would be willing to take a couple questions. Uh, and um, if you can remember to repeat the question. That yeah, OK. Here's some, here's some questions right away. <laughs> Thanks for that really uh, moving reading. One of the themes in all of this work seems to be the challenge of using the first person pronoun. What does it mean to say I? And at one point, you, um, in the first piece that you read, you said something about trauma defines the lyric, or maybe it's the lyric defines trauma. And I wonder if you could kind of unpack that a little bit and talk a little bit more about how the lyric is constituted within trauma. The question is, um, um, could I discuss how the lyric is constituted in trauma, um, given that I said that? <laughs> um, for me, the lyric is, you know, it is the, the sort of fragment, the unspoken, the, the private language of the self. And I think, um, you know, the, 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 the line, trauma for me can be anything. It's the and it's anywhere where the where the self feels a gap between itself and the external world, 
and how that comes about in any one life. Uh, you know, there's, there's so many ways that can happen. Um, and so I, I think that the lyric allows us to enter into the space of the unspoken, which is separate for me from the sentence or prose. I mean, narrative and story is a different thing. I, I, I think we can all talk about the narratives that we can embrace, but the lyric is that place that is so private, it's outside of language in a sense. I mean, there's a, there's a story about Paul Salon. Um, somebody else might remember the name of the poem, but he wrote a poem um, about the Holocaust, and you know, it was, it was one of these poems that had clear definitions about what happened. And then he said he didn't want that poem around anymore because it, it created a closed narrative. And then he began to write these lyrics where the body didn't show up as a whole thing. It showed up in fragments. It showed up in the limbs. It showed up in um, the disconnection of the self that the trauma had, occurred, uh, had, had occasioned. And so for me, I, I feel like why even if I, um, I'm working in the lyric or I'm working in film, why I insist on identifying as a poet is because poetry gives me access to that. I hope that answers. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say something about your use of the first person, too. I think it was so brilliant when you, in that last poem, you started addressing Robert Lowell, who, of course, was famous for being a confessional po poet and writing about his own life using the first person. But it, it seems so interesting. I mean, a person coming to your work for the first time and not knowing much about it would probably assume that the I referred to you and referred to your life. And then at some point, we'd start to go, wow, that's quite a complicated life. <laughs> and it gets more and more capacious. And um, so the, the, the I is both personal, but collective and then also somehow evacuated and too in, in, into a kind of impossibility of saying I. And I guess that's not a question, really. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but can you talk about um, your use of, of I? And does, does personal, you mentioned that your uncle was in one of those photos. Um, is there ever, or are, to what extent are there autobiographical Strands. It seems. It seems as if you're writing a, an autobiography, but it's not your autobiography. Mm. Well, I, I wanted to um, to the question is the question. Is, <laughs> the question is um, what are the lines um, between um, autobiography and and material for the you know the text and um, this. Book, I want, I, for this book, what I really wanted to do was create a social biography. Um, because I think, I think growing up black in America, there's a way, you know that moment, I'm going to interrupt myself, but you know that moment when black people, they're sort of out and about and they see another black people and they're like, you know? <laughs> and, it, and it happens all the time. 
you know, you're walking in the mall, you see a black person, you're like, hi. <laughs> and then they keep going and you keep going. But that, that sense of recognition, that sense that we actually do share a trauma that's one, historical, but two, there's a kind of way in which the daily existence asks for certain kinds of compromises and certain kinds of adjustments that you only have to make if you're a person of color. And I, so I think that those nods in the mall and those nods in the street are recognition of that. And so for this book, I wanted to be able to write something that was both very personal to me and also very general to the history as I know it. And to be able to create a text that could hold, you know, that could breathe in and out this body and then other bodies. And, um, and so I came up with this structure where the, the family would be, every, every text would somehow have to be defined within the realm of family. We're in no way simple, but somehow different. And I, I found that some of the language really, I mean, that this is the interesting thing. There's a, there's a kind of truth to it, although, you know, who's, is it your specific truth and the experience and history, or is it just some kind of resonance that I, that I definitely connected to in thinking about um, the ways in which my own family of Jamaicans would think about the experience in Jamaica and then the, the process of immigration and that kind of twice um, I was going to say twice disadvantaged, but I'm not sure if that's a language, but tw this kind of removal from something, because even, of course, in Jamaica, there's no kind of simplicity. It's, it can be imagined as such, but, you know, so I found that was very interesting, and then, of course, this isn't a question, really, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I thought that was kind of interesting, because there is this kind of resonance that does even more so make it seem kind of documentary, <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, while at the same time it's more expansive than that one specific story, but very familiar and almost like intimate. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm just intrigued by how you could create that kind of sense of both some of the narrowing down, but also the breadth of. Okay, so the statement is. <laughs> um, um, that there, there, there is within the work a kind of recognition of the Jamaican experience, and um, and that it feels both recognizable. It feels recognizable in a way. The um, this year is the um, anniversary. I think it's the 50th, that would make sense, right? The 50th anniversary of, um, of Jamaica's independence from Britain. And so that's another reason why I wanted to address those issues in the text. And, um, you know, one, I think Fanou, Fans Fanou is perhaps one of the most important people, writers for me because 
though it's important to recognize racism and call it out and say, stop, stop, um, I think what goes unaddressed is the way in which that racism is absorbed into the black body and acts out um, in ways that destroy the black body. And so I, I think you know, Fano is one of the people who addresses that the best. And, and so I'm really also interested in that, in, in, in sort of the, the ways in which the external assault causes uh, internal um, disintegration and that becomes an external assault. Um, and so, so both, and I think coming out of a country that's colonized, but that is still under the thumb of the first world, you know, still a product of the IMF contract, still um, unable to move in terms of a country. You know, one of the things I, I, I remember reading was about the Japanese disallowing IMF and the American banks from bailing out Asian countries. And I thought that was the smartest thing they did. That sense, like, if the country's failing here, we'll deal with it. We will not put ourselves in that kind of relationship to a European culture. And I think um, that relationship in the Caribbean is a really damaging one, even, even with the stated independence that happened in the 50s and 60s for many of those countries. So that's my answer. <laughs> Okay. All right, so the first half of the question, um, once would like, wishes me to address um, race and gender issues that are approached through engaging the Lowell poem, yes? And the second half um, would like me to address the Open Letter Project. All right. And the engagement and reception um, the Open Letter Project has gotten in the academic community. Yeah? Okay. All right, so the first, the first question. Um, I, 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 I was, you know, when I, I part, of, part of what's nice about this book is that I don't have to do all the thinking. So um, I don't, it's a very fluid project and I've been working on it for a while and and so 
I didn't think about Robert Lowell, but Agni asked me to write, they found some photos of Lowell. And they, they said, we found some photos of Lowell, never seen before. You want to pick one and write something? <laughs> so then it became part of the book. You know, so that's how that happened. But in the, when I sat down to write about Lowell, I thought, you know, I'm thinking so hard about the use of the first person and the privilege of the I and the um, issues around objective and subjective case. So it seemed like a natural fit and, and this idea of taking on Lowell in terms of, you know, because one of the things that's interesting in, in life studies is that he takes on like lineage and, and the grandness of his family when in fact there's another sort of reductive way in which you could say you're just very sad for whatever reason and you could just take on the sadness, you know? So I wasn't, and, and the race, gender, I think I brought that in just in terms of questioning my own ability to question him as a canonical figure um, and, and playfully. So that, that's, that's how that came in. And you know, I love Berriman's quote, um, we're using our skin as wallpaper, we cannot win. That's from the dream songs, I think, maybe 53, I'm not sure. But, um, and that I, you know, and I feel like Berman quite gets it. <laughs> you know, he really got to the, the, the heart of it very quickly. Um, so hopefully that answers that. So it's, some of it is just happenstance. The Open Letter Project, those of you who know, it was a call for essays on race and the creative imagination. And um, we got some fantastic essays, really interesting, moving ones. And we're putting together a text base. In fact, my next thing is to finish the introduction. I'm doing it with a... Um, a writer, Brett Beth Lafreda. I did ask um, Tony Hoagland if he wanted to do the project with me, and he declined. And I, I definitely wanted to do it with another writer, so I asked Beth if she would um, do it. It's, it's unfortunate because she's white. She's a white woman. And um, as Beth, as um, Tony is a white man. And um, so we're in, we've, we've sort of, unintentionally put ourselves in the black-white again, when it's really, met, you know, it's whiteness, but then Asian, you know, there's so many other, so I, it's, on, maybe we should get another editor, and another, and another, <laughs> and, then, and then it would probably work a little bit better, but, um, but, that, but that issue of the black-white is a big one in the open letter, because it, when you ask people to talk about race, it immediately turns into the black-white. And, um, and immediately it turns into racism, not race. It's, you know, it's a question of positioning oneself around the black-white and racism and never thinking about white privilege or whiteness as a construct or blackness or, you know. So, so the, what's nice about the essays is that they address that. 
I, you know, in terms of what the reception is in the academic community, I don't know. I don't know. I, a lot of people wrote in, and so I feel like that's great. And, um, and that's our community, right? That's the writing community. Um, I mean, there were other reactions to me personally, both supportive and not supportive, but that's personal. You know, I, I feel like that's another issue that has to do with human beings being human beings. But the um, but what we got were really interesting essays, and they're up on the website, and you can always go and read them. And if at any point you send us an essay, I say us because my husband actually posts them, um, we will post it, and that site will always be maintained and be available for the text. For the book that we're working on, we're pulling only the essays that actually look at writing, rather than ones that look at personal experiences um, around race or racism. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, or should I take another question? He said take another question, so I will take one more question. I, this is like... Um, you know it's the last question. All right, so, okay. Let's pretend this didn't happen. One more question. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, I just, I, I had to give a talk last week in Berkeley, and I have a PowerPoint that answers your question. The, <laughs> um, so the, um, the question is, how does the visual, and t the visual um, relate to my work? And um, one of the things that I, I realized was that so much that happens to me as a woman and a black person happens because of how I look. It has nothing to do with who I am. And so it seemed to me that it would be interesting to begin to write into images and to give them context, to open out the space of the image, to put the story behind the moment. You know, and so I think the first one we did was the Zadon, maybe. Maybe that's not true. Maybe it could be true, you know. Uh, <laughs> Let's say, let's say that that was the first one. But one of the things that struck me about the, the Zidane headbutt um, in the World Cup was that the media started immediately saying, look at that bad behavior by that guy. How dare he act like that? Doesn't he realize children are watching this? You know? And, um, and then I thought, then I began to research around Zidane, and I found out his Algerian... History. I found out about the place he has on that team. I found out how he's brought them to victory so many times, and the kind of racism that you know has followed him. The stuff about his father working against, working for the French government during the Algerian. You know, so there was so much political, and so I wanted to put in the backstory, and so that's you know that's one of the ways in which I became very interested in the role of the visual up against um, text, just what text can do. And um, were I giving this talk, 
um, maybe I'll come back and give you this talk. I'll just come down and give it to you because it, it has visuals and everything. <laughs> and I'm really, really, really in love with PowerPoint. And the um, <laughs> and you guys have got the projector down there. Um, but one of the things I look at is um, um, artists like um, Glenn Lycon, Adrian Piper, um, and 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 the images. You know, there's an image, for instance, of these women, and maybe they're Mexican, Mexican women in a field, and and then the word, the phrase written across them is, because I think it's like a cornfield, and it says, so where do you think this came from? And what that text does to the bodies of those women in terms of accountability, account, you know, and turning them into product and not landscape, is really interesting. So we, we, the talk looks at a bunch of moments like that in the art world. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye.